Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, the War Room podcast producer and editor, and a professor of strategy here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're bringing you another episode as part of our series on the emerging environment in the Indo-Pacific region. The series is being produced in collaboration with the Department of Social Sciences at the United States Military Academy, and it's part of the 2019 Senior Conference. The conference provides a forum for distinguished scholars, practitioners, and government officials to engage in candid discussions on topics of national security importance. Senior Conference is made possible by the generous support of the Rupert S. Johnson Grand Strategy Program and the Association of Graduates. And War Room is proud to help continue this conversation online. In this episode, we want to explore some of the ways that technology and cyber capabilities are affecting regional security in the Indo-Pacific. And I'm pleased to have two guests with me in the studio. First, Renee DiResta has spent the last year as a researcher at New Knowledge, a cybersecurity company that investigates the spread of disinformation and malign narratives on social media. She has advised Congress on issues including the social media activities of Russia's Internet Research Agency. Renee, it's good to have you here today. It's great to be here. Second is Jonathan Reiber. He is head of cybersecurity strategy at Illumio and a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. He spent seven years in the Obama administration in the Department of Defense, including time as the chief strategy officer for cyber policy and special assistant and speechwriter to the deputy secretary of defense. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So both of our guests also have uh, prominent online profiles, and you may be familiar with their writing on these topics. Uh, so we're really happy to have them together and to get to talk about these important emerging questions. Um, so the first question I want to start with is really one about the relationship between technology and people and all of the talk about technology and emerging capabilities. Sometimes I think it's easy to forget that there are still people involved in all of this. Um, certainly for historians of technology and others, one of the foundational ideas is that technology is neutral and that it's really how people use it and how people behave uh, that makes the difference. So my question is this, does that central idea still make sense when we talk about the current state of play in cyber technology? And Jonathan, yeah. we'll sort of throw that over to you first. Yeah, no, I, definitely. I think, you know, people sometimes forget because we spend all of our time online that the internet is only 36 years old, right? So we, as I, as I say, often, because I think it bears repeating and reminding, we went from zero to four billion users in 36 years, which um, is the same age as Nicki Minaj and the same age as Chris Helmsworth, who plays Thor in the, in the Marvel universe, right? So that's, these are like young people, right? So the internet is young and we should never forget it. And it has been the fastest, most global advance of technology in human history. And for that reason, hu humans are sort of shocked by it. They um, Facebook, if you remember, is only 13 years old, uh, and so these things came at us quickly, and we weren't we weren't prepared. We weren't ready for for what they would do to our societies. This is not, however, humanity's first technological rodeo. Right? We had the printing press, we had the, the dawn of the aviation age, uh, birth of machine gun and military affairs, the, you know, the dawn of the nuclear age. 
all of these things sort of shocked and surprised humanity. But I think the, the, the thing that makes, obviously, that the Internet so, there's a bunch of different characteristics that make it so different. Um, it deals with information. It's not just a weapon, right? But when you're shocked and amazed and surprised by something new, you often forget that there's this great quote that I like to use um, by Arthur Schlesinger. He says, science and technology may revolutionize our lives, but memory, myth, and tradition frame our response. And that ultimately means that human beings are responsible for their own destiny. And when you think about it, like the, the transformation of the self and the collective self in society, the way that the self manages transitions is by following narratives. And if the self doesn't put it forward on their own, they need a leader. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why leadership is so important for helping us to manage the disruptions of the digital age. Sure. And narrative is so important to define self and to define other and to define the world around us. And Renee, this I know is part and parcel to sort of the work that you've been doing. So maybe you can pick up uh, from, from there. Yeah, I can. Uh, you know, the conversation about whether and how neutral tech is is one that we're having a lot in the Valley these days. So I'm out in San Francisco. I work in tech. And it's less about accessibility or, or what people do with it, and it's actually more about the foundational algorithms themselves. So what happens when, you know, you mentioned the printing press, we moved from a period where previously we operated in a framework of information scarcity, right? So access required you to, um, you know, there were kind of several periods in history where people had varying degrees of access to information. Um, when the internet was created that really democratized content production, as particularly as social platforms were then layered onto that, the idea that um, you know you would see this prompt when you logged into Facebook or onto Twitter it would say like, "How are you feeling? What are you doing?" You know, inspiring people to become content creators themselves to shape their narrative, to put their narrative out there into the world. But as that began to happen, you had this new curatorial role that the platforms took on, right? Social media in particular. Um, so that aspect of technology is very interesting when we think about the idea of neutrality because the question becomes, is it viewpoint neutral? Is it accidentally biased? What does mm -hmm. an algorithm return when it's curating our information? And as we spend more time in a curated environment, because when you live in a period of information glut where all of your you know, 500 friends are putting I ate a sandwich into that what did you do today box, <laughs> the platform finds itself in a position of how does it show you what you want to see? How does it drive engagement? And how do we think about those engagement feedback loops? It has to show you something interesting. So is the platform at that point still neutral? Um, it's sometimes, you know, it, uh, I have a Mozilla fellowship. One of the things that's great about Mozilla is the thinking about ways that, that um, the kind of sociological aspects of technology. And we really get at the question of, um, is algorithmic curation neutral? Is it possible for it to be neutral? And you see people on the left uh, believing that the platforms are biased one way and people on the right believing that the platforms are biased another way. Yeah, where everybody thinks it's biased against, against them. them. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting to think about that as far as when we think about our narrative frames, what we see, how we see it. Um, it's really just looking at kind of a correlation matrix. What are you, how, how are you, what are you likely to mm -hmm. want to engage with? Um, but there is some kind of underlying waiting there, uh, waiting in, in what the platform decides, hierarchical, W-E-I-G-H-T, like ranking. Um, how do we think about that yeah. going forward? Because certainly the internet and the, the platforms are helping us sort through information um, in, a, in maybe new ways that, that human interfaces might have done before, whether that was clergy or librarians. Um, now machines are doing a lot of that, a lot of that curation. Um, when it comes to thinking about how 
this environment that you just talked about relates to security questions and national security. What do you think are the the major sort of drivers of change in that in that field? Sure. So um, why don't I start? I think it's the internet and and cyberspace has altered how human beings communicate, how they compete, and how they cooperate. And when it comes to state competition, when 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 cybersecurity really became a major issue within the national security community, and for me, I started working on it in 2010, um, there was a sort of fetishization of it. Like, it's so different, it's so new, and, and there was a lot of jargon that was thrown around. I think ultimately you do still have to you layer the traditional forms of state behavior on top of it. And so if you're thinking about thinking about how either internal conflicts unfold or states enter into a conflict with one another, ultimately you're still dealing with the same questions of aggression and deterrence and conflict prevention that you do in other domains. And for me that comes down to um, if you're dealing with an internal conflict, it has to do with like how a leader communicates with their population. If a population experiences a grievance in an authoritarian state, and you could look at China and say, if the middle class begins to shrink over time, you could imagine a scenario in which portions of the middle class and China has some sort of uh, external conflict that puts it into pressure. You could imagine a scenario in which portions of the middle class go online and start using cyberspace to push back against the state in a way that they haven't. They could even try to procure malware, right? This is something that the Chinese haven't necessarily thought about. Um, when it comes to, obviously, like for a long time, we were very focused on critical infrastructure in the United States. We thought. States like Russia, Iran, North Korea, they would conduct an operation against the electric grid. And, and they had penetrated the electric grid, and we were very concerned about it. But because they, we were so focused on critical infrastructure, we sort of missed the opportunity that they could say they're going to start influencing social media. Or if we, attract, if we noticed that they were influencing social media, then the question became, this would be the first time that we're going to have to push back against a foreign state in cyberspace during the election period, which is already very fraught. So a smart state is going to find moments of transition and try to exacerbate fissures in society, whether they're attack, attacking infrastructure or trying to manipulate right. a population. That's what we've seen so far. So when we think about the ways that states or non-state actors exploit vulnerabilities or exploit fissures, this is, this is nothing new, right? This is, in fact, what states who are competing with each other strive to do all the time. Yeah. Renee, in, in your work, when you think about the sort of exploitation of social media um, and other sort of news outlets in particular, how does that play in the, the sort of current national security conversations, do you think? Yeah, I think we're just starting to see the first iteration of, um, you know, Russia's operation from 2014 to 2017 was, uh, it was bold, right? It was, uh, you know, they, we had seen factions rise on social media before. We had seen um, manipulation of algorithms to achieve what we call manufactured consensus, right? The perception that a larger number of people believe mm -hmm. a thing than actually do. Um, and this is driven in part by things like what's trending. Yeah, um, so it's actually, the, the algorithms that I was mentioning, the idea of neutrality is interesting because when you have algorithmically mediated curation, if you understand the weighting, you can game the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And there was not very much in the way of a hardening then, right? So when things would trend on Twitter, you could you could achieve that with a fairly simple primitive botnet um, in the early days of, of uh, you know of 2015, because what was going to trend was just what was out there the most numbers, so, right? Numbers, right? So numbers, and then they had to get more sophisticated in how they thought about what it meant to trend. 
Um, what did Twitter want to reflect to its users? What, what was the substance of a trend? Was it simple numerical, here are what the greatest number of people are talking about, or, or were they going to take more of an opinionated stance and, and rethink mm -hmm. what they were going to do? That led to a lot of screaming about censorship because you know people who would operate these botnets realized that the platform was not allowing things to trend and that led to allegations of censorship. But what Russia did that was interesting was they, they built these factions, they built them up over a period of years, and what we still don't really understand is the impact that it had. And that's because since it was done on a private platform, while the platforms have provided some data to Congress, while the platforms have put out some transparency reports, we don't have a full understanding of what people who saw this content went on to do. We can't see how it impacted them. We can't see, did it change their hearts and minds? Did it nudge them in a particular mm -hmm. direction? We know that platforms are intended for persuasion, right? They're built for advertising, so they're built for that nudge. Does a political nudge work? Um, there are a lot of really interesting questions here that we just haven't gotten to the bottom of yet. And I think that there's one other thing I'll add for this particular audience, which is that Russia was sloppy. They were sloppy in 2014 to 2017. They made mistakes. They did things like creating Twitter accounts that had the names of US cities in them, but running them with metadata that quite clearly right. did not match the persona that they were trying to put forth. And I believe they did that because they knew that no one was looking. People are looking now, which means that you have to up your game, which means that you now have an opportunity where adversaries are going to continue to evolve in the space, which means that we're now at a, in, you know, kind of in a position where the social infrastructure that people act on has become this kind of dual-use technology sure. where adversaries are using it to target us. And how do we enable the platforms to respond? And how do we think about this as a whole of society approach? How do we educate people? And then what do lawmakers do to come up with regulations and deterrence? You know, it's interesting on that. I think, we, I would say we've, we can measure a certain amount of progress, right? Like, if you look at the 2018 congressional elections, you had Microsoft, Facebook, um, other multiple companies that were taking proactive measures to push uh, in, in the realm of influence operations to push bad actors off, right? Concurrently, the investments that we made starting in 2010 with the stand-up of U.S. Cyber Command and then two years later the sort of ratification on, on that initial judgment within the military was an investment in 6,200 individuals to join the Cyber Mission Force, which had three missions, one of which was to defend the United States against cyber attacks from the outside. Um, so fast forward, you have the, the Russian actions of 2014, 2017. Um, it doesn't quite catch the United States government completely flat-footed, but there's a period of confusion. Still, you've made this investment in U.S. Cyber Command. Now 2018 rolls around. You see Facebook and Microsoft and the other companies being very transparent, having worked with the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and other government agencies in advance to say, these are the kinds of actions we have to take. And then they, they're very public about it. They post things about it on their blog. After the election, only after the election, is it disclosed that U.S. Cyber Command took the first publicly disclosed counteroffense operation in history against the Internet Research Agency. And U.S. Cyber Command essentially like went in and shut off access, preventing the Russians to be able to do the kinds of things that they did previously. Now, there were two things, right? They, if you look in the FBI indictment and for Goosefer 2.0, they hacked into Gmail, they hacked into the Democratic National Committee um, and others, and then they were doing the influence operations through social media. So there was a sort of hard cybersecurity component where you have to sort of, organizations now definitely recognize that they need to invest in cybersecurity measures, right? So just wrapping up briefly, like 
we now have, we, we've now dealt with a disruption. There, this is an event where we know states try to interfere in elections. So you say, okay, we now have a sense for what needs to be done. So you build a strategy, you get the right people together in a room multiple times, you build relationships of trust, which are ultimately incredibly important. You identify gaps and you build capabilities, and then you make future investments. And that's the process through which humanity goes every single time there's a technological disruption. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that you brought up is this cooperation uh, that's really required between government actors, between private entities. What are the challenges in in those sort of public-private relationships as we think about cybersecurity and we think about the national security implications of the cyber realm, but it also yeah. has clear right implications for the financial sector, for multinational um, corporations and businesses. Yeah. How do we balance those? And so, how do we balance that with things like American values of free speech and the openness of information and the openness of the internet? So I think, you know, the internet, it, it used to be the humanity perceived threats and one's nation state through geography, right? It was like, here's my country, here are the borders that keep so-and-so out. Renee's written about this, uh, and I've thought about it too, right? I like to say that there's a new map of the world, and the internet has altered how states engage and, and, and think about one another. Um, and what, I mean, personally, from, from my standpoint, there are data centers that underpin every single part of how we perceive reality, and we don't think about data centers. If you pause the average human on the street who's looking at Google Maps and you say, where does the map reside? They're like, it's on my phone. It's like, actually, no, I'm sorry. There's a satellite up there, and there are data centers all over the world. Yeah, or maybe you get it's on the cloud, which right. nobody knows. Which then they say, what Dad, like, what's, what are clouds made of? <laughs> and they're made of Linux servers. Um, so, you know, there's, there's this unseen map of the world, which is comprised of data centers that no one ever thinks about. So you have to actually secure the interior of your data center if you want to be able to secure the data on your phone or your newsfeed. Like, that's like a sort of thing that most Americans don't think about. Um, but an additional function of this new map of the world is that our alliances have changed. It's not just that you need the French and the, and the, and the British to go with you when you go into the breach. Uh, once we're into the breach, my friends, you need Google, Facebook, Microsoft, mm -hmm. Akamai, who are willing to conduct operations in concert with the government. Yeah. And this required. is really a question then about how interests align and what is in the best interest of yeah. Facebook, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, and what's in the best interest of the United States, of its allies, of its partners. Yeah. There's a lot of wariness of looking um, like you're cooperating too closely with the government. Yeah. This is a thing that Silicon Valley has been touchy about, particularly the post-Snowden Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. Um, I think that we've made some progress on that in the last two years. I know that when we first started researching the Internet Research Agency, as an outsider, somebody who was in the Valley, had a lot of friends at the platforms, uh, but was just was not working at a platform company myself, um, those of us who started doing independent investigations, there were some back-channel communications where we'd be like, hey, you should maybe have a look at this. But there was also a, a feeling that it was actually quite adversarial for a while there. Um, that was one of the reasons why the tech hearing started, was the sense that we needed to have an accounting. We needed to hold the platforms accountable. Much the way Wall Street was held accountable, well, okay, you could argue <laughs> to what extent that actually happened, but they at least showed up <laughs> and sat down in front of Congress. There were some they hearings. They didn't send their lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was sort of a, uh, there were some hearings. Um, we thought, okay, well, we need to have some hearings. And that was partly because the very idea that this had happened was so politicized. And there was actually a perception um, 
from some of us who, who researched this, that the only way that we would be able to come together and acknowledge that this interference had happened, um, if you recall, in, in 2017, that was not, mm-hmm. it, that, that was a huge matter of debate. There was the Seth Rich conspiracy. There was the theory that, um, you know, it was way too hard to attribute the GRU hacks to the GRU, that it, it what was the 400-pound guy in the mom's basement or, you know, one of these, like, crazy, <laughs> uh, um, crazy memes. And so... There was a sense that having the tech platforms participate as full partners and to take accountability and to recognize both set them on a path of recognizing their accountability for, you know, they, they built these private public squares and yet no one was in charge. So there was a sense that we needed to be thinking about capabilities and responsibilities and capabilities were scattered all around the U.S. government and then in these private platforms and then in these independent researcher right. pockets. So we had to come up with a way to share signals more effectively. And then responsibility is the one where I think we're still not quite there yet. And that's the question of, given that this is an ongoing threat and an evolving threat, uh, where does it live? I think the Army cyber, it's in the last maybe six months or so that that's really kind of um, gelled or I guess maybe, yeah, a little over six months maybe, that that's really gelled into being the the center where responsibility is housed at the government level. And then the platforms, you know, Facebook did a pretty comprehensive overhaul where it developed these integrity teams for each different product surface. So there's a groups integrity team, a newsfeed integrity team. So they have all of these, they have recognized that that each of their features serves as a different vector for a particular attack or And know, could be threat. used in different ways. Right. And so their integrity teams specialize in a awareness and monitoring and assessment of sure. what is happening like on that part of the product surface because the platform is so large, particularly as it's acquired in things like Instagram and WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. For national security professionals who are not cyber experts, and let's be clear, that's most of us, um, what's the one thing that we need to know about the internet, about technology, about cybersecurity uh, that that they don't know? And maybe a related question is, uh, what's the question that they most need to be asking that you don't think is being asked right now? I think with influence operations in particular, they are happening, they will continue to happen. Countries that have been running them against their own people, particularly in political spaces, which is which is what we've seen most of the uh, Indo-Pacific type influence operations that we are aware of are things like uh, Indian parties running WhatsApp and Facebook campaigns targeting their own people for purposes of winning elections. Um, I Philippines, same thing. I think we're going to start to... I think we need to prioritize better uh, awareness for the potential for those things to be turned outward and to really be thinking about what kinds of detection should we be prioritizing. How do we think about understanding not two years after the fact mm-hmm. what has happened, but but getting better at at early detection, at, at understanding that there are certain playbooks that have been run now by multiple different types of actors. Russia and Iran, for example, both used extremely similar methods. Uh, what is that likely to look like in if China were to decide to uh, to go that route and to be thinking much more proactively about the social infrastructure? I think we need to be thinking about it. Um, I say sometimes disinformation is a cybersecurity problem. And what I mean by that is uh, there are opportunities, you know, using something like a kill chain methodology to think about where do you, where can you intercede? Mm-hmm. And that's where I'd like to see more security professionals thinking in terms of given this ecosystem, given that adversaries have access to the same ecosystem that we do, um, 
what might we be likely to see? So thinking of it almost like a penetration testing for social platforms mm -hmm. in a, uh, not in a literal sense, but in, a, uh, in terms of um, how would one manipulate the feature set as it exists today to achieve a certain aim. Right. And then how can you respond within yeah. that ecosystem? Yeah, Jonathan, what about you? So I remember when we, when we started the Cyber Policy Office in 2010 and I joined, um, it was comprised of like detailees, mavens, sort of the human equivalent of a 1952 Chevy, right? It was like you couldn't get people to sort of believe in it as an issue. I remember one friend of mine was like, you know, the cyber, I, I really don't think it's that big of a deal, right? This is like 2012, 2011. It's probably a thing that they wish they had not said. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the people were equivocated. These weren't just indecisive people, <laughs> but like, and you couldn't attract sort of like the prototypical, highly ambitious, like Harvard or Johns Hopkins educated policy mm -hmm. person to the office. It just wasn't a natural thing. But then events started unfolding, right? You first you had Stuxnet, um, then you had like Aramco, there's the Iran's attack on, on Saudi Arabia's oil and gas corporation. And so you had this sort of elevating threat and all of a sudden people started flooding the office. And they flooded it first out of their ambition, right? They were like, oh, I'm really interested in the internet. I'm really interested in cybersecurity. But I haven't learned about uh, I haven't learned about technology, right? So they would ask questions like, "Do I have to go and get a certificate or whatever?" And they did, but it was it was easy. The, the funny thing is here, though, it was people's ambitions pushing them forward past their doubts. A lot of people don't have those levels of ambition. So the first lesson that I offer for the, the average national security person is: stop being intimidated by computers. Mm -hmm. The barrier to entry is nowhere near as high as you think. You know more than you think you do. Just get over yourself and like yeah. learn about it, right? It's really easy. Pick up an Economist article, read like ten articles, and you know more than certain right. people in the Pentagon. Um, and this, I think, is really especially important for leaders who are maybe O fives, O sixes, sort of early career general officers who aren't digital natives. Yeah. Who feel like they are right? They're still like hitting five spaces to yeah tab a paragraph. Don't a boss do of mine. That. A boss of mine used to say like. You know, as you're going about your work, and you, say you have a really strong forehand, or a really strong serve, but your backhand's weak. And then you work on your backhand, you work on your backhand, you work on your backhand, all of a sudden your serve is weak, right? I've seen leaders multiple times go into cybersecurity problem sets being like, I'm gonna lean on this person because they know more about it than I do. And only later, or really tried and trusted leaders will lean on their serve pretty quickly. But you wanna, you wanna stay strong and, and focus on the core things that you've learned as a leader, and that's like running teams, being strategic and making investments. And when it comes to cybersecurity then, to so like what are, what are logical steps, you do have to focus on data centers, right? Like data centers and cloud infrastructure. And that's an awkward conversation to have with people. You have to hire smart people. If, if you're a corporation or a new team within the military, you have to find smart people who want to learn. And once you find those people and they join your team, then you can start to make progress. And ultimately you wanna like figure out where the, where the greatest vulnerabilities are, where the crown jewels are, the applications that you need to secure, the things that you absolutely have to secure. You have to game it out, and you have to identify the fissures and exercise and practice and practice. So that's okay. like, that's the first thing I would say. It's just mostly good strategic advice, right? Go yeah, find smart people, be curious, yeah. ask questions, yeah. um, know what your core capabilities are, know where your vulnerabilities are, and then know the ecosystem, know the environment, and figure out how you can act uh, within that. Uh, so to wrap up, um, are we pessimists or optimists about the future of tech and cybersecurity in the national security realm? You know, like I've been doing this for more than I ever thought I, for longer than I ever thought I would. Um, 
the Russian interference in the election drew me back in. I was planning on going and pursuing another life in sunny Oakland, California, doing God knows what, surfing. Um, but in fact, the issue just gets, seems to be getting worse. However, I'm an optimist because I built U.S. Cyber Command and made this big investment in 2012. The four stars were immensely nervous about it. But then lo and behold, in 2018, we, the, the Defense Department came out with a new strategy for persistent engagement and pushed back against the Russians, and it's awesome that we shut the Internet Research Agency off before the congressional elections of 2018. It's an immense sign of progress. Whether countries, and in, in, as the next billion users come online in Asia, I cannot control or dictate how leaders will behave in those societies. That's out of our hands. The message I have for them is like, stand up and communicate to your populations about building inclusive leadership and building an inclusive society that respects the rule of law. Otherwise, people will come after you online. Great, thanks. Renee, what about you? Um, cautiously optimistic. I think we're making a lot of progress with regard to coming up with effective multi-stakeholderism. I think the regulatory environment is not necessarily great in the U.S. Um, other countries are kind of stepping up and not always in the most ideal ways, I don't think. But the tech platforms have accepted that degree of responsibility and are there, there are some self-regulatory movements happening out in Silicon Valley, too. I think the challenge, though, is that we really haven't had the reckoning with things like moderation versus censorship. How do we feel about speech online versus the need to uh, to actually do proactive work to take out inauthentic, uh, inauthentic speech? How do we have that conversation as a society? How do we think about what that is going to look like? How the infrastructure for speech has fundamentally changed uh, and, and what expectations mm -hmm. that will carry with it? Mm -hmm. I think that's a in the highly, highly polarized partisan environment that we're in now, I, I, I don't really believe that it's going to be approached in good faith. And I think that that's yeah. a disappointment. So lots of challenges, but also lots of opportunities. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a really uh, good conversation, lots to think about. Thanks so much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.